Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. And so it all comes down to, you know, are you going to approach the subject, uh, uh, skeptically, which is the one side, or gullibly, which is how he's presenting everybody who's not skeptical, or, which is what I would argue, are you engaging in the evidence uh, intelligently and discerningly, which is very different. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. Is the term historic Christianity something we can actually define and demonstrate? Or was early Christianity quite diverse in what they believed in their core beliefs? Was it simply the theological winners who got to decide what we now call Christian orthodoxy? My guest today has co-written a book addressing these claims and taking a closer look at what the earliest Christians believed and how they defined Christianity. Dr. Andreas Kostenberger is the research professor of New Testament and biblical theology and the director for the Center of Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has authored, edited, or translated over 50 books. He's also an expert on the Gospel of John, and he's just written an introduction to John's Gospel called Signs of the Messiah. Dr. Kostenberger, what an honor to have you on the show today. Oh, love to be on your show, uh, Elisa. Good to be with you. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'm so thrilled personally to get to talk with you because your work was really instrumental in helping me several years ago when I was going through my own Mm -hmm. crisis of faith. Uh, Many of the Christians in my circle were sort of rethinking Christianity, and they were embracing a more progressive type of Christianity. And Mm -hmm. uh, they were embracing the idea that the core beliefs and the tenets of Christianity are progressing themselves. And as we grow into more evolved beings, more mature, morally mature people, you know, we can redefine those things. And so some of that was built upon the idea that early Christianity was hard to define, and that the New Testament documents aren't really what they thought 
thought they were or what we grew up thinking they were. Mm -hmm. And so this redefinition of Christianity sort of began to emerge in the circles Mm -hmm. that I was in. Some of them started reading Bart Ehrman and credit him as being really instrumental in changing their minds Mm -hmm. on what they even think the New Testament is. So we're going to talk about all of that today to try to help untie some of these knots for people. So many Christians have never heard the names Bart Ehrman or Walter Mm -hmm. Bauer, Mm -hmm. uh, but if if you're watching this today and you're a Christian and you're like, I've never heard these names, Mm -hmm. chances are you've heard their ideas, particularly Bart Mm -hmm. Ehrman. So Dr. Kostenberger, who is Bart Ehrman? And what kind of influence do you think he has on what people think Mm -hmm. about Christianity Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. New Testament? Well, first of all, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your story. And uh, I commend you that you uh, took the time to critically assess some of those claims. And and you're right, uh, that narrative is on many of the, the popular uh, media, uh, especially at, you know, times like Christmas and Easter. And uh, it can be very uh, deceptive and misleading often for the unsuspecting public uh, if they don't realize, you know, what's behind this this narrative of this uh, idea of, of, of the early diversity in, in, in Christian beliefs. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, whether or not people have heard the name Bart Ehrman, clearly he is a very public uh, spokesperson for for that kind of narrative that that you know maybe they do it with a smile but but the actual teachings are very detrimental to uh, the biblical faith and so this this really calls for discernment. Uh, uh, Bart Ehrman is the head of the religion department at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, where he typically teaches New Testament survey and other classes. Uh, Uh, taken by college freshmen who often become uh, the unsuspecting victims of his skepticism. In fact, uh, he stated publicly that his agenda is to convert his students from Christianity, which he considers to be naive and and, and, and even gullible, undiscerning, uh, to uh, his views, which are atheism or at least agnosticism. Uh, Ehrman is also a best-selling author, who has a knack for addressing scholarly topics uh, in a way that's accessible for a lay audience. And so it's been highly influential, even on those who may not know who he is or, or what his agenda is. He, he presents himself essentially as a historian who uh, claims to dispassionately look at the evidence apart from any faith commitment. Uh, so he presents himself as perfectly neutral and objective. Uh, and as a result, he claims that he's able to enlighten those who have been indoctrinated by the institutional church uh, with a faith that he claims is, is unsupported by the evidence. Uh, but as we show in our book, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, and also in two other volumes, which I wrote with two collaborators, Truth Matters and Truth in a Culture of Doubt, uh, Ehrman often tells his audience only one side of a story which alleges that the Bible is full of contradictions and is corrupt, uh, when in fact, that's not true at all. So ultimately, he's very misleading and tendentious and and driven by a skeptical agenda. Uh, As a matter of fact, in in Truth Matters, uh, we start out with chapter one, which bears the title Skepticism 101. 
So some of his freshman students don't realize they're not just taking a class in New Testament survey. They're taking a class in skepticism 101 and everything mm. he touches, just like the golden Midas touch. In his case, it's the touch of skepticism. Whatever he touches, uh, you know, then is given that negative spin, whether it's God, Jesus, the Bible, uh, you know, or even the nature of suffering. Mm. Do you think that he was really the first one to bring those ideas to the popular level? Because I know that some of the things, like you said, he's very one-sided. He gives one side of the story, which I learned as I discovered more evidence, because I had been told a lot of his ideas, never heard yeah. them before. But I remember thinking, okay, whatever conclusions this side has come to, somebody else has the same evidence and they've come to a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. And these are debates that have been going on in the scholarly world for, for so right. many years. But do you think that his influence was so profound because was, do you think he was the first person to just let the average Joe Christian know about some of these debates? Yeah, I think, you know, there's some truth to that. I think, you know, sometimes uh, those of us who are seminary professors or or even pastors uh, in the past have felt we don't necessarily want to burden people with the minutia of, of text criticism or, uh, you know, for instance, the idea that uh, in, in John uh, there's this uh, so-called uh, the story of the adulterous woman which is, is in some Bibles is, is put in, in a footnote or, or there's some disclaimer uh, added that many of the earliest manuscripts don't contain it. And we didn't necessarily think anybody would use that to uh, extrapolate maybe from one or two passages like that, that the whole Bible is like that, that we're you know, highly uncertain uh, you know, what is in the Bible and what isn't in the Bible. And and then uh, someone like Bart Ehrman comes along, and he, he I think, uh, shamelessly exploits that, and 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 and, and sows distrust, and, and basically has this conspiracy theory that he's going to tell the unsuspecting believer what, uh, you know, pastors or or seminary teachers uh, have deviously uh, kept from them, and so he presents himself as as a person who's actually. Uh, telling the truth, who's enlightening, unsuspecting Christians, what the church has kept from them. Uh, he was not the first one to mm. to know that. As a matter of fact, uh, those of us who have engaged in scholarship, we've been aware of those issues, you know, for a long time. But you're right. I mean, he's he has this charisma and this knack to popularize subjects that are admittedly difficult to explain to a lay audience, such as text criticism or, uh, you know, other matters of, of, of theology, maybe the difference between uh, John's gospel and the earlier three gospels or differences among uh, the three gospels. And, and so it all comes down to, you know, are you going to approach the subject uh, uh, skeptically, which is the one side, or gullibly, which is how he's presenting everybody who's not skeptical, or, which is what I would argue, are you engaging in the evidence uh, intelligently and discerningly, which is very different. And so that's the option that he often excludes. And as a result, there's many scholars uh, who would disagree with him, uh, even though he presents his own uh, views as, as being representative of the mainstream uh, of scholarship, when in fact it's only the mainstream of skeptical, highly critical scholarship. But there's also a, a different side. Uh, I mean, all of us 
want to be guided by the evidence, including the historical evidence. And in many cases, as we show in our book, uh, history is not on his side. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned text criticism, and this is something that I dug down so deep into when I was in my faith crisis. And so if anyone's watching yeah. and you're curious what that's all about, it has to do with reconstructing the wording of an ancient text when we don't have the originals anymore. I do have a podcast with Dr. Peter Gurry. If you go back mm-hmm. in the archives, you can take a listen and get to know what Dr. Kossenberger is talking about with that. But you also mentioned your book, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, which I happen to have mm-hmm. right here. I just... I want to show you this. Um, just this is so highlighted and dog-eared, yeah. and I mean, I just almost every page is just covered mm. in highlights because this book was yeah. so so helpful to me. And it's sort of written. Uh, I, I guess it wouldn't be too far of a stretch to say it's written in response to or in regard to an older book that's called or- "The Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity," and that's written by a scholar named Walter Bauer. And we've kind of given a mm-hmm. little bit of a flyover of who Bart Ehrman is, but who is Walter Bauer, yeah. and what influence does he have on Ehrman's ideas? Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, even someone like Ehrman, he might present himself as original in some ways, but but really he's getting his idea from others. And and uh, and, and and I would say the the macro structure, the, the the basic model of Christianity that Ehrman uh, espouses, I think uh, he is hugely indebted to Walter Bauer. Now, uh, Walter Bauer Bauer was a German theologian who uh, did his work mostly in the first half of the 20th century. Um, you know, a little over 100 years ago. Um, he's actually best known for a Greek dictionary, uh, you know, so-called Bauer, Anker, Arndt, and Gingrich dictionary, which which New Testament students uh, know very well, uh, and his work in linguistics. Um, but he also wrote a book called, as you mentioned, uh, Heresy and Orthodoxy in Earliest Christianity, uh, in which he sets forth his uh, famous uh, thesis, and that book was first published in German in 1934, so before World War II, but was translated into English only in 1971. So there was about a, you know, a, a almost 40-year gap in terms of the the impact uh, Bauer made. So by the time the book was translated, it was almost 40 years old, but uh, his impact only began in in the English-speaking world in in the 1970s or so. Uh, and, you know, since then, of course, that's still about, you know, a half century ago, uh, Bauer's work has been extensively scrutinized and, and, and many have shown it to be fatally flawed. So uh, you mentioned the uh, heresy of orthodoxy. We had really the uh, advantage of drawing on many very compelling critiques already. So we did not have to be the first ones to uh, show the flaws. As a matter of fact, even Ehrman acknowledges uh, many of the flaws in the Bauer thesis, but oddly enough, he still uses it because it serves his purpose uh, to discredit Christianity as only one version of the Christian faith rather than as the definitive uh, authoritative expression of it. So let's dig down into what this Bauer thesis is. In in your book, you refer to it as the Bauer-Ehrman thesis. Uh, talk about what what did he yeah. propose was going on mm-hmm. in early Christianity, uh, and I think that you know if if people are watching and listening and they hear this Bauer Ehrman thesis, I think once you start to explain it, they're going to go, "Oh, I've heard this," and I I just didn't exactly. know that was what it was called. 
Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Uh, well, um, essentially, uh, Bauer's theory says that in the beginning, Christianity was diverse. Uh, in other words, there was no one Christian faith, one Christianity. There were Christianities in the plural, and and you immediately can gauge uh, Bauer's influence on Ehrman in that he has several books out. I think one is called Lost Christianities in the plural, and another one is called Lost Scriptures. And so uh, clearly uh, he has uh, bought into the central tenet of Bauer's thesis that in the first century there was no undisputed, commonly agreed upon core to the Christian faith, what you and I might uh understand to be the gospel. Uh, rather, there were only multiple versions of Christianity, neither of which could have, uh, could legitimately uh, stake a claim to being the exclusive or, you know, definitive uh, expression of Christianity. So the result of that is that uh, there's no truth as such. Uh, there's only uh, multiple uh, versions of it, and in the end, uh, it, it, it really is just a matter of, of who then seizes the initiative uh, to use their uh, religious or political uh, clout, you know, their ecclesiastical power uh, to impose their beliefs on the minority. Um, and uh, already you can see that that is uh, a very popular belief in, in, in university circles and has been for quite some time, uh, especially in, in France and in, in, in other liberal parts of Europe. The idea, uh, you know, that was proposed by people like Jacques Derrida and other French philosophers a long time ago, uh, that uh, truth is, is basically a, a means of oppressing other people. And so the church then is essentially oppressing ordinary Christians uh, with what they deep down inside know is not really the truth. It is just their preferred version of the truth. So it's really a very cynical view, I would say. And it also makes uh, those of us who believe in the gospel look like we're basically building on a terrible legacy of our forebears who basically brutally eradicated any uh, you know, deviation to our preferred version of truth, which deep down inside we even knew is not necessarily the real truth. It's interesting that you would bring up Jacques Derrida because he's often referred to as the father of deconstruction. Of course, we're seeing this deconstruction phenomenon happen to mm -hmm. celebrity platform Christians. They go on Instagram, they go on YouTube, and they say, hey, I had all these questions I was asking, and their faith just unravels like a sweater, you know, once you pull the thread. And yeah. I'm yeah. I'm wondering what relationship do you think some of that postmodern philosophy that was coming out of the 60s through guys like Derrida and all of that. What kind of influence do you think that has on this modern view that early Christianity was? I, 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 if I remember correctly, in the book, you kind of argued that our culture is a little bit obsessed with diversity, and we might be yeah. sort of putting that onto what happened in early Christianity. I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, so the, the subtitle of our book is, uh, you know, of, of heresy of orthodoxy is actually how, how uh, the contemporary culture's fascination with diversity has reshaped 
understanding of early Christianity. And and my co-author, Mike Kruger, and I, when we were working on the book, I remember actually going out for lunch one day and we're trying to hammer out, uh, you know, the subtitle because the title is a little bit ambiguous, right? And then you don't really know what heresy of orthodoxy means. Of course, there's an allusion to Bauer's work, as you mentioned, but people don't recognize the illusion, you know, uh, how do we help them understand what's in the book? And essentially, uh, hopefully the subtitle will tell you exactly uh, what we're talking about. We're talking about not even just the work of one scholar, you know, a German scholar who wrote a book, you know, almost 100 years ago, or even Bart Ehrman. You know, we're talking about the, uh, it is a fascinating study of how scholarly paradigms are, uh, you know, built even for, for college students today, for them to realize that that people like Ehrman start with diversity, which becomes a uh, kind of a, an axiom, you know, a non-negotiable uh, starting point. Uh, you know, diversity, pluralism, uh, you know, postmodernism, the whole idea that truth is subjective. You know, and today you look at the transgender movement. It's 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 again, it's the idea that that our our gender is subjectively chosen and defined. There's no objective uh, standard uh, for gender or for truth for that matter. And so I think, yeah, uh, as you intimated in your in your questions and your comment, I think there's a very direct uh, connection between the, you know, there's a German word, Zeitgeist, which means the yeah. spirit of the age, uh, and uh, the the underlying premises of, 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 of people like Ehrman, but there's a much bigger picture. And so I think part of the success of our book, uh, Heresy of Orthodoxy, was written several years ago. You know, it still resonates quite a bit. It's because it is not strictly limited just to the Bauer-Ehrman thesis, but it shows how this is almost like some sort of a case study of how paradigms uh, really persist in in terms of the, the big idea when many of its details have been shown to be fatally flawed. Yeah, so let's talk about how diverse early Christianity actually was. And before, and this may kind of tie together, but before mm -hmm. we lead into that, I want to ask you, what sort of evidence is used to make the case for the Bauer-Ehrman thesis? What yeah. what are they pointing to to say, hey, this is why we believe early Christianity was so diverse? Yeah, and that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I'm German background, and so I uh, you know, I feel like I understand Walter Bauer maybe a little bit uh, in terms of his original uh, university setting. Uh, he was not a Bart Ehrman, okay? He was not kind of a charismatic, charismatic ideologue, you know, who, who who was pushing some, you know, politically correct agenda. Uh, he was in many ways uh, kind of a more of an ivory tower, uh, you know, theologian who who engaged in a study of of really second century Christianity. And so he thought it would be an interesting uh, project to look at any historical uh, evidence we have for the existence of, uh, you know, what is known as either orthodoxy or heresy, right belief, you know, deviant belief in the second century in four major urban centers, such as Ephesus or, or Antioch or, or Rome, uh, just more as a, as a, uh, a case study of, of you know what you actually found in those regions, and 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 what he argued is that well, if you find uh, orthodoxy and heresy kind of side by side with no clear uh, declaration of which was correct, and he had shown that in the early days of the church, uh, 
there was really no clear standard for what was right belief and what was deviant or wrong belief. Uh, orthodoxy versus either heresy or heterodoxy would be another uh, way of calling it. Uh, now, what's funny is, though, and ironic, is that he never actually studied the first century. And I, I really want our listeners to really listen up because uh, it. when I first discovered that, it was stunning to me. Actually, uh, the title is highly misleading because it says heresy and orthodoxy in earliest Christianity. So I would think all of us would assume he would start right right after the resurrection and the the uh, you know the the book of Acts and and the the churches to uh, which Paul wrote his letters. But uh, in fact, uh, in his book and and it's still available on Amazon and elsewhere. Our listeners could check it out. He doesn't talk about the first century at all. It's all second century. And so then what we had to do in heresy of orthodoxy is to actually take a look at the first century, something that Bauer never does. And what we find when you look at the first century evidence, uh, as we show in our book, is there's actually a very strong definition. I think you do something similar in your book, uh, a very strong definition of apostolic Christianity and the gospel. And, and people who taught contrary to it, were denounced by the first Christians in the strongest terms possible. You think of Acts 2.42, for example, where Luke writes that the first Christians were devoted to the apostles' teaching. I mean, that was very, very early. Or, uh, you know, a passage that many will recognize, uh, Galatians 1, where Paul writes that some in Galatia were turning to a different gospel, which assumes a clear definition of what the gospel is. And then he goes on to say that if everyone were to preach a gospel contrary to the one he preached to the Galatians, he should be accursed. Um, and I think he says that, and he's, he continues, because he believed he got the gospel directly from Christ himself on the road to Damascus. And uh, at the beginning of Romans, he calls himself an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, and goes on to say that this gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's in Romans chapter 1, verse 2. So the fact is apostolic Christianity in its core beliefs was fixed from the very beginning because the gospel was not a new invention. It's deeply rooted in the Old Testament teaching about God, about his righteousness and covenant faithfulness, and about the Messiah he would send. So the Bible is clear. There's one God. There's one Messiah. There's one way of salvation. Just like there's one gospel, one message, one good news of salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there was no diversity in any of that whatsoever in the first century uh, within the bounds of apostolic, historic, orthodox Christianity. And this is exactly what I discovered when I was sort of on the tail end of my faith crisis. I, I remember thinking mm -hmm. I was watching so many of my friends reject the Christianity they grew up with, but very often the Christianity they were rejecting was maybe abusive in nature or hyper-legalistic or some some sort yeah. of, a, of abuse or hypocrisy or moral failing or something like this. Right. And I remember thinking, okay, if I'm going to decide that Christianity is untrue, first I need to define it. And I need to go back to the earliest sources to find out right. what 
what it meant, what what made it unique in the world. Something did. Something defined it and made it unique in the world. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is exactly what you just talked about, going back to that first century, even back to the Mm -hmm. first Corinthians, the the creed in first Corinthians 15, that um, even our our friend Bart Ehrman, uh, you know, argues like this isn't something Paul made up. This is this is Christianity in a nutshell. In fact, that was something that was so eye-opening to me. Even I I signed up for Bart Ehrman's blog as I was going through some of this research. And I kind of discovered a bit of a different airman on his blog than I did in, for example, when I read his book, Misquoting Jesus. There was a lot more rhetorical power in the book and persuasive quality, whereas on the blog, it was more just informational. I was actually surprised to discover Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. he agreed with more conservative scholars on some things, of course, not not all things, yeah. but even this early creed being the gospel for those earliest Christians, Christianity in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know he might analyze that a bit differently, but I just want to say for the viewers as well, Dr. Kostenberger mentioned his co-author for this book, uh, Heresy of Orthodoxy, and I wanted to just point you to a great resource. Uh, even if you are going to go to the second century, Dr. Kruger has written a great book, mm-hmm. really, really good book called Christianity yeah. at the Crossroads, where he establishes really it wasn't even very diverse in the second century, going to the rule of faith and and different things like that. So I just want to commend that to you. That's a really great accessible resource to even help you through after the first century going on forward into the second century. Uh, So you've just shown us some first century documentation about what Christianity meant. It, It really does not seem to appear to be this melting pot of ideas about Jesus. Um, Mm. So sometimes people hear the words heresy, and they hear the words orthodoxy, and there's a bit of confusion Mm -hmm. because, of course, there's the orthodox church. That's not what we're talking about. This is little o orthodoxy. Um, So tell us, and you you sort of alluded to this a moment ago, but what is heresy? What is orthodoxy? And is it true, uh, as some of these people claim that what mm-hmm. we now consider to be orthodoxy was just decided by the winners mm-hmm. of certain theological battles who sort of silenced the voices of all this diversity and said, no, this is what it is. Absolutely. So heresy is a distortion of orthodoxy or accurate teaching about the Christian faith. And in the first century, uh, orthodox teaching centered around the gospel, the saving message about Jesus Christ. You you mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, where Paul writes that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to countless people after he rose from the dead. Uh, and then in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then, as you mentioned, in the second century, the gospel came to be known as what the early church fathers called the rule of faith. So in both the first and the second centuries, there was already a clear understanding as to what the gospel was, and there was no diversity as to the core Christian message. There may have been some diversity uh, on non-essential matters, and of course we know that certain uh, controversies were uh, hashed out and, and settled, such as uh, you know the inclusion of Gentiles in the church in the uh, at the Jerusalem Council. That's uh, 
narrated in, in Acts 15, but that's just a good example that that there was diversity till it was settled uh, in favor of a unified uh, position in the church. Uh, there's also diversity in the sense that we have four Gospels, right? Uh, each of which is written from a particular vantage point, you know, unique style with, with some uh, distinctive emphases, but but it's very important to realize none of that rises to the level of contradiction or disagreement as to what the core gospel message is. So I think part of the problem with Bart Ehrman, and we had to wrestle with that in writing The Heresy of Orthodoxy, uh, is that he lumps all of us together into this amorphous category of contradiction or diversity. Uh, and so then what we need to do is we need to distinguish between you know, what we in, in heresy of orthodoxy call legitimate and illegitimate diversity. That is legitimate diversity with regard to worship styles, personalities, and, uh, and, and so forth, versus illegitimate diversity, uh, which has to do with contradictory messages on the core beliefs of Christianity. And, and regarding your your you know follow-up question no it's not true that orthodoxy was decided by the winners of of certain theological battles that's more of a conspiracy theory and part of this kind of sociological theory that we talked about a minute ago that that truth is decided by the powerful but that in fact there's no such thing as is absolute absolute truth so i believe here what ehrman does is he essentially presupposes that there's no such thing as absolute truth, and then engages in circular reasoning when he tries to show that truth is merely a result of the powerful imposing their beliefs on the powerless. Mm. That That's fascinating. And when I think about how we establish the evidence for the earliest version of Christianity, of course, we are going to be relying on the New Testament documents for that. These are uh, first yeah. century documents. And so I would be thinking if somebody was going to try to refute what you're saying about the first century ideas and what the what defines the earliest versions of Christianity, they would have to somehow demonstrate that the New Testament is either corrupt or came along much later than we thought it did. So this brings us to the discussion about the New Testament canon because Absolutely. it's very important. So when we use that phrase or that word canon, what do we mean? What is the canon? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and just to affirm what you just said, that it, it's very clear that uh, the New Testament writings, and especially the, the four Gospels in the New Testament, are by far our best sources for Jesus and for early Christianity. And so sometimes, you know, part of that narrative is that uh, maybe the Gospel of Thomas or some other Gnostic Gospel may be more primitive. But uh, I think scholarship has has clearly shown that None of those Gospels are to, is to be dated in the first century. They're all second or later. Uh, and so they are derivative and parasitic of the four Gospels in our New Testament. Uh, and so it brings us back, as you mentioned, to assessing the, the reliability, reliability and the historical accuracy of uh, the New Testament writings. Now, the canon is essentially... Uh, the collection of the New Testament writings, which uh, consists of 27 books uh, in a particular order. Uh, the English order, as, as you know, of course, uh, starts out with the four Gospels and the Book of Acts. And then we have the Pauline and the non-Pauline letters. Uh, and finally, the Book of Revelation. There's just a beautiful uh, 
you know, cadence uh, to the New Testament uh, that starts with, of course, the foundational documents about Jesus and the early church. And then uh, the letters in many ways just kind of work out what does it mean uh, for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, to 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 have been justified by faith and to live, uh, you know, a new life in Christ. And of course, the book of Revelation deals with the second coming. So you start with the first coming and you end with the second coming. So uh, I'm currently working on a biblical theology with an Old Testament collaborator, and and we take a canonical approach. And uh, again, uh, just uh, there's so much we can learn, even from the juxtaposition of those different books, the fact that John's gospel gospel is fourth and last and and, then provides some sort of capstone of what the early church called the fourfold gospel. Uh, Now, uh, talking about, uh, you know, Ehrman's theories here. Now, what he claims when it comes to the New Testament canon, he says that it was only in the fourth century, the fourth century, uh, that the church decided on those books. Um, so he says uh, this lengthy process of, you know, canonization, uh, 300, 400 years, uh, you know, anything was up for grabs. And, you know, in his book, Lost Christianities and and Lost Scriptures, he makes it look like, I mean, we might just as well have had the Gospels of, of, of uh, Thomas, Philip, and Mary uh, in the Bible rather than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think History shows otherwise. And so even though he presents himself as a historian, uh, we have clear evidence that the fourfold gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was already widely accepted in the second century. Uh, As we see in canonical lists, such as the Muratorian Canon, which is uh, normally dated to about 180 AD or some other similar canonical lists, also church fathers. Uh, like Irenaeus, who also wrote in around 180 uh, AD, uh, claimed that the fact that we have four Gospels uh, is as natural as uh, there being four winds or four corners of the earth. Uh, And he was talking about Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, So really, the idea of a New Testament uh, is is closely tied to Jesus' establishment of a new covenant. I I commend to you uh, Mike Kruger's work in that as well. He wrote, uh, you know, several books on the uh, on on the on the canon, uh, the question of canon being one of them, and also he wrote uh, two or three chapters in Heresy of Orthodoxy on the canon. And I think there he argues very plausibly that just like the Old Testament canon is built around the old covenant. Uh, that God made with his people. So the New Testament is essentially the record of a new covenant that Jesus established uh, with the 12 apostles and the implications of that new covenant uh, for the life of, of believers in Jesus. So there's there's this inexorable logic that a new covenant required new covenant documents, and that is what we find in the New Testament. And I'm glad you brought up Dr. Kruger's book. I I think the one that impacted me so much was called The Question of Canon. And in it, he argues about these different definitions of what the word canon actually means. And he said, you know, some people refer to it as that final list that was settled in centuries later. But actually, he said, you know, 
it rather reflects, and he quotes another scholar on this, but the entire process by which the formation of the church's sacred writings took place. And then he uh, yeah. he points out that, you know, early Christians, earliest Christians, long before those councils, they differentiated between canonical and non-canonical books. Uh, mm-hmm. Certain New Testament writings were cited as Scripture long before, uh, you know, uh, uh, not long after they were even written. There right, is right, yeah. church fathers, as you mentioned, compiling lists of New Testament New Testament books long before those councils met. And, of course, the early Christian manuscripts were intended for public reading, and then the use of the codex. There's, there's all kinds of different evidences yeah. to show that Christians actually considered at least the four Gospels and, and some of at least some of the writings of Paul to be mm-hmm. yes. canonical scripture long before that was, that was really even finalized. And I think that's a really important, uh, important thing to bring out. So walk us through a little bit of how that process for the canon yeah. worked for the New Testament and how that relates to the topic that we're discussing today? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. And then sometimes people just think of the canon just as the process. And and there was a process, even though today we have the product of that process in our Bibles. But I understand to trust the product, to some extent, it's helpful to understand something about the process that led to those books being included in the canon, I think especially for many young Christians, that is a very natural question uh, to ask. Uh, and uh, there was definitely a process involved, uh, you know, in a development that is commonly called canonization. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think uh, Mike and I both would argue that God inspired the New Testament writings. You know, in Second Timothy 3, he says that all scripture is God breathed, uh, you know, the Greek word theopnoistos, uh, inspired. Uh, so each of the 27 New Testament books bears this intrinsic spiritual quality or attribute of divine inspiration. That's already built into the document. And so the New Testament writings, we would argue, were divinely inspired um, right as the Holy Spirit moved the various writers of Scripture, Second uh, um, Peter one, uh, verse twenty one uh, says as much. Where you know it talks about the the Holy Spirit uh, moving the writers of Scripture, similar to Him uh, inspiring the Old Testament prophets. And the the image there is that of a wind, you know, like uh, filling the sails in the in a sailboat. So it's just a very uh, fascinating, uh, you know, word picture. Uh, And yes, it took the church several uh, decades to acknowledge the inspiration of those writings. Uh, And in many ways, what the early church did was uh, they assessed the connection of those writings with the apostles. And in many cases, it was direct. In some cases, it was more indirect. Uh, Direct in the case of, say, Matthew and John being uh, one of the twelve. Uh, in other cases, like Mark or Luke, it's more indirect. They were associated closely with uh, the apostles. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like the uh, the COVID vaccines, which, uh, you know, they haven't been formally approved, is my understanding. And, and so when you get vaccinated, you have to fill in this disclaimer form. Uh, uh, but they're already effective. 
and still need to go through this process of, of, of formal verification and testing by the, the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, before they're formally approved. So in other words, it didn't take the church finally putting their formal stamp of approval uh, on the New Testament writings to actually make them inspired. They were already inspired, but it took the church just a few decades to, to recognize the inspiration of those writings. Yeah, that's a helpful example to use in understanding how that process works. And in the Heresy of Orthodoxy, you write that the Bauer-Ehrman thesis is invalid. And and this is a quote. You said um, it's invalid and that early Christianity was a, quote, largely unified movement that had coalesced around the conviction that Jesus was the Messiah and preached Jesus crucified, buried, and risen on the third day, according to the Scripture. End quote. So I, I want to ask you, we're going we're gonna to close out this section mm-hmm. in just a moment, and then we're going to continue mm-hmm. with our Patreon supporters. But before we do that, why do you think the Bauer-Ehrman thesis continues to remain so popular despite it being so soundly discredited? Well, as I said, Bauer's theory claims that in the beginning, Christianity was diverse and only later coalesced into what we know today as the Christian faith. You can see how this would appeal to uh, contemporary culture, which, as the subtitle of our book suggests, was is fascinated with diversity. Uh, that's why people like Bart Ehrman, who acknowledges that Bauer's theory is flawed in many respects, still draws on it to affirm Christian diversity in the first century and uses it to debunk the truthfulness of the Bible and its claims regarding Jesus. Uh, as a result, he speaks of the writers of Scripture uh, as the proto Orthodox, and says he was only the Roman church later on that used its clout to decree what Christians were uh, to believe and branded everything else as heretical. And as I mentioned, it's a rather cynical view because it says that there's no such thing as absolute truth. All truth is relative, uh, simply a matter of what the powerful impose on others. Uh, and I think that's why Bauer's theory still hangs around it. It resonates with our contemporary culture's fascination with diversity and imposes that theory onto first century Christianity, even though the historical evidence and the biblical evidence clearly doesn't bear that out. And I don't want this time to pass without mentioning your newest book, Signs of the Messiah. This is your introduction to the book of John. And as I mentioned, you're an expert on the Gospel of John. Uh, Why did you decide to write? uh, Because I noticed as I'm reading through, this is a very accessible introduction. This isn't, you don't feel like you're reading a scholarly volume. It's very easy Mm -hmm. to understand. And so why did you decide to write this book now? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, uh, just in general, I, I love John. Of all the Gospels, he, of course, wrote last. And so it's a bit of a capstone, as I mentioned, uh, of the fourfold Gospel uh, corpus. And uh, also, uh, John was the one who was closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry. And so he was uniquely qualified to bear witness uh, to Jesus, even in, in John's uh, old age. He might have been uh, as old as 80 or even 90 when he wrote the gospel. So he had a lifetime of, of experience and reflection uh, backing up uh, what he writes about in the gospel. I also love the fact that John is so simple in his language uh, and yet so profound in his theology. Uh, and uh, I think lastly, he's, he, he's the one who most clearly identifies Jesus as God. Um, 
and affirms that Jesus eternally existed with God the Father. Uh, and so in many ways, uh, he has the, the highest uh, view of Jesus, the highest Christology, and, and in many ways, the most intimate uh, account of Jesus. So while I love all four Gospels, I have a special love for the Gospel of John and, and have uh, uh, you know, studied it now for, for almost 30 years. Well, and as we've been talking about cynicism and skepticism, as that applies to biblical scholarship, one claim that comes up quite often, it's called the synoptic problem. It's the claim that the book of John, as you mentioned, has some differences from the other three. Uh, mm -hmm. It's claimed often that it's even in contradiction to the other three Gospels. So what's your response to that claim as an expert of the Gospel of John? Yeah. Well, as far as John being different from the three earlier uh, so-called synoptic gospels uh, is concerned, I I say to some extent guilty as charged, uh, <laughs> but I would argue that's an asset, not a liability, as there would have been no point in you know reinventing the wheel and writing up for a fourth time what's already been said in the first three gospels. Uh, I believe as an eyewitness and writing a couple decades later than the earlier Gospels, John wrote to supplement the earlier Gospels uh, and to give us a, un a unique theological perspective on who Jesus was. Uh, and for that reason, he omits a lot of material from the synoptics. It really blows your mind when you think about it. So uh, among the things he does not include are the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, uh, demon exorcisms. He doesn't have a single demon exorcism. He has no parables. And he doesn't include any of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. He also doesn't include Jesus' end-time discourse, the so-called Olivet Discourse. Uh, doesn't have uh, events such as, uh, you know, an account of the transfiguration. And I, I could go on and I explore that in the signs of the Messiah. But uh, I think for our purposes, it's interesting that Instead, John uh, chooses to show that Jesus came as God incarnate, as God in the flesh, uh, as he explains in his famous prologue, and then focuses on seven selected messianic signs of Jesus. That's really the backbone, and that's what I focus on in my new book, Signs of the Messiah. Uh, he features those uh, seven signs to show that Jesus presented more than enough evidence to prove that he was the Messiah. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He even raised the dead. All acts that were expected of the Messiah. So if anyone is assessing the evidence of whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah, uh, they have no reason not to believe. And I believe to show that is the burden of John's gospel, you know, to... Uh, paraphrase Shakespeare, you know, to believe or not to believe. For John, that's the question. And that's why he wrote the gospel. And so I love his single-minded focus on that question that will basically determine our eternal destiny. And so uh, I will do everything I can to help bring even unbelievers face-to-face uh, -face with Jesus, uh, who still asks us the question today, who do you think that I am? Well, we're going to continue our discussion on the Patreon-only portion, uh, so you can get that. You can access that by going to patreon.com 
slash Alisa Childers. You can check out the different tiers there. I believe to gain the bonus content that we're about to record with Dr. Kostenberger, you can select level four. You can gain access to a monthly ministry update video. There's a Facebook group you can join. You can get a free book on a certain tier. So check all of that out. We also make transcripts of the podcasts available. I believe that's tier five. And so check all of those out. Go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. Dr. Kostenberger, before we close out this portion of our discussion, I want to give you the last word here to speak to people who might be listening or watching this today who might be themselves a bit confused about some of these claims they're hearing. Maybe they have someone in their life who gave them a Bart Ehrman book or who is telling them some of the new ideas they're learning through people like Bart Ehrman and other more skeptical scholars. What would you leave them with today as a word of encouragement? Yeah, I would say that there's uh, excellent resources uh, for them to um, consult uh, that help them uh, learn about the other side of the story, the one that that, uh, Bart Ehrman keeps from them. And as we mentioned that he often uh, says that, you know, the the church is is keeping the truth from uh, ordinary Christians. And I would say, well, uh, actually, Ehrman, is uh, only telling his skeptical side of a story, but there is a, uh, uh, you know, another side. And, uh, you know, if, if you may allow me, there's books such as The uh, uh, Truth and the Culture of Doubt, uh, which is the more advanced version. And in the simpler version is uh, Truth Matters. Uh, we even have in the end a point by point rebuttal feature, which is very user-friendly because I, I went to a debate uh, between Ehrman and Dan Wallace, uh, Dallas Seminary professor, and talked to some of the students who attended that debate. And it occurred to me that they don't have necessarily time to read you know, a, a whole book on that topic. Uh, they already have a lot of other assignments. And so we wanted to put at their fingertips some helpful resources where we include some of the uh, the one-liners, the zingers that Bart Ehrman, you know, gives at some of the public appearances he has, like there's more variants in the New Testament, that there's words in the New Testament. And we uh, supply people with cogent, credible, uh, alternative uh, answers, uh, the kind of answers that that Ehrman, uh, in some cases, knows they exist, but but uh, he simply prefers not to, to tell people. So uh, uh, be encouraged uh, and... Uh, uh, realize that um, skepticism, hardened skepticism, sadly, has uh, closed the door to reasonable dialogue and is basically uh, no longer open to the evidence. And so what what uh, doubt is okay. And so uh, if you're doubting, uh, then uh, yes, uh, engage in intelligent uh, dialogue and conversation and get to the bottom of a given issue uh, by looking at all the evidence, uh, not you know the part of it that uh, that supports your ideological agenda. Well, thank you so much. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, for just enriching us with so much great information today. Just a reminder again, get his books, Truth in a Culture of Doubt, Engaging Skeptical Challenges to the Bible. Very important work. If you are engaging with the work of Bart Ehrman, make sure you're looking at both sides. Get that book. Get The Heresy of Orthodoxy, such a helpful book to help with that. There are other scholars who are answering the claims of Bart Ehrman. You 
you can look at their work too. Dr. Kostenberger has teamed up with Michael Kruger and Daryl Bach, just great scholars to provide answers to some of these claims. And you know what? Dig into scripture, get signs of the Messiah, uh, go through the gospel of John with fresh eyes. If you're listening today on any of the audio platforms like SoundCloud, iTunes, Google, Spotify, please leave us a great review. It really helps get the word out to more people. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe, click that bell icon to get notified every time we release a new video. And I'm telling you, if you leave a comment, it really helps with the algorithms. It helps put this into the news feeds of more people so that they can hear this rich and wonderful information. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.